Good afternoon and welcome. It's my pleasure to introduce to you an award-winning writer, Pat Barker, author of 12 novels. She began publishing in 1982 when Angela Carter persuaded her that a novel she'd written about a terraced street in the northeast should be sent to Virago. That novel was Union Street and it won the Fawcett Prize and she was off and running. And shortly afterwards, she was nominated, selected as one of the top 20 most interesting, um, important writers in Britain. And since then, Pat's fiction has helped us to think about a lot of things. The relationship between history and trauma and memory, between psychology and psychiatry, between class and life aspirations and achievements, sexuality and gender, art and ethics, and of course war. Because the Regeneration Trilogy, for which the finale of The Ghost Road won the Booker Prize in 1995, has been described by many as a masterpiece, and I'm using that word because I know that it makes Pat wince. <laughs> but a label like that makes us begin to think about why readers, both here and abroad, should return to particular stories over and over again. And Pat's novels are set, well, continue to be set in the Northeast here, but also in Kosovo, in London, in the battlefields, on the battlefields of um, France and Belgium during the First World War. And really, she helps us to think about many of the issues which are pertinent to contemporary anxieties about Britain. She's returned to the First World War in the last two novels, Life Class, and the one that's going to be our focus today, or our primary focus anyway, Toby's Room, both of which are set in the period immediately preceding and during the First World War. So as we approach the centenary of that war to end all wars, I think she's beginning to help us again to think about how we remember, how it was represented, and how we may talk about it. So to begin the conversation, Pat is going to read um, a particular scene from Toby's room. Uh, you don't need to know very much about uh, what I'm going to read in order to understand it, because it's uh, a relatively self-contained passage. Uh, Kit Neville uh, who, uh, and Paul Tarrant are going out for the evening. Uh, uh, Kit Neville is being uh, tremendously facially injured, completely disfigured by a shrapnel wound. And it's his first outing from the hospital where his face is being reconstructed. Uh, Paul Tarrant, also wounded but much less seriously, is working as a war artist in London. And uh, what you need to know about their relationship is that they were, they were not students together, they didn't overlap, but they became friends in the, years, the year before the First World War. And, but in addition to being friends, they've always been rivals. They've been rivals as painters, and more than once, they have been rivals for the uh, affections of the same woman. So this is a, 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 a prickly, abrasive, but nevertheless, in a strange way, committed friendship. They're letting me out, Neville's note had said, just for one evening, but it's a start. There was nobody I would rather spend my first evening of freedom with than you, my dear fellow. 
So if you're agreeable, I could pick you up from the Slade this Thursday at half past six. I believe you still work office hours. Of course, if you'd prefer not to be seen with me, I shall quite understand. Since when had he been Neville's dear fellow? Neville must have many friends closer than Paul, whom he could have arranged to meet. But there again, perhaps not. His capacity for offending people was legendary. Refusing to be niggled by that sly dig about office hours, Paul finished work precisely at six, cleaned himself up and changed into the uniform he'd brought with him. Even with a stick and a limp, it wasn't wise to be seen on the streets in civilian dress. He wasn't much looking forward to the evening, but it was the kind, the decent thing to keep Neville company on his first venture into London. They'd find a back room in a pub somewhere and talk, he supposed, about painting. Now that Neville had been commissioned as a war artist, painting was once again a safe topic. And then, duty done, he could pour Neville onto the Sidcup train and go home. Neville was waiting near the reception desk. He was not in uniform, which surprised Paul a little, until he reflected that Neville had his face to vouch for him. Standing there in the shadows like that, he became a figure of menace. Paul wished he would move, look round, say something. And yet, as Kit Devil turned towards him, he had to brace himself for his second sight of that face. Nothing. That was the first impression. A featureless silvery oval hovering in the half-darkness, as if a deranged wandering moon had somehow strayed into the building. Then he understood. Neville was wearing a mask. My God. Yes, my son? Neville came across and shook hands. Oh, come on, Tarrant. How often do you say my God and get an answer? I'm sorry. It's a bit of a shock. Paul was still struggling to take it in. The mask was beautifully made. Expressionless, of course, except for a faint, archaic smile. It reminded him of a kouros, except that they had no individuality, and this most definitely did, though it wasn't a portrait of Neville as he had once been. I borrowed it, Neville said. It isn't mine. Well, I'm impressed. So you should be. It's an original Ward Muir. He might have been explaining the provenance of some recently acquired painting. Chap it belongs to. Mm, well, no face at all, basically. I don't think even Gillies can do much for him. So off he went to the Tin Noses Department, the last resort. It's beautiful. Bloody should be. It's Rupert Brooke. <laughs> God, yes, so it was. Now he'd been told, it was obvious. Very popular, apparently, the Rupert Brooke. But why? Why would you want to look like somebody else? Neville shrugged. Why not? Why not aim for something better? You've got to admit he was absolutely stunning. I'm afraid I never met him. No, I suppose not. It was hard to relate to Neville wearing that thing, and though it hid the ruin of the face, it also directed the imagination towards it. Paul struggled to find something sufficiently neutral to say. Is it comfortable? Not really. In fact, if you had to wear it all the time, it would be absolutely bloody intolerable. The eye holes turned towards him. And if you try to see it from a woman's point of view, what would be the point of kissing this? Too raw, too intimate. I don't know. No bloody point at all. 
Better the gargoyle underneath. Well, I'd have thought so, wouldn't you? His voice was shaking with anger and pain. Suddenly, Paul realized that behind the mask, anything was possible. Neville could say, and quite possibly do, anything. Immediately, Paul's nervousness about the evening increased. He compensated by trying to get the conversation back onto more mundane topics. How do you drink through it? Straw. Neville produced one from his inside pocket. Bet you've never drunk whiskey from a, through a straw, have you? No, I don't believe I have. They set off to walk, but unexpectedly, Neville veered out into the road and hailed a cab. Where are we going, Paul asked. The Café Royal. Is that a... But Neville was already inside the cab. Paul followed him in and gave the address. A sharp intake of breath from the driver as he turned and saw the mask, but his response was calm, if unpredictable. I had him in my cab once. <laughs> Who? Neville asked. Rupert Brooke. <laughs> he was good him. There's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. Yeah, that would be the bit with my nose underneath it. Just fucking drive, will you? Conversation was at an end. Shoulders stiff with offence, the driver turned his attention to the road ahead. Christ, Neville said, if there's one thing I hate, it's cab drivers who think they have to be characters. Yes, but let's face it, Neville, there aren't many people you don't hate. Outside the Café Royal, Neville insisted on paying the fare, but ended by scattering coins all over the pavement. An elderly man who bent down to help pick them up got the mask thrust full into his face and hurried away with a final incredulous glance over his shoulder. I'll get it, Paul said, reaching for his wallet. As he paid, he saw Neville bracing himself to enter the building. It moved him, that small private act of courage. He reached out and touched Neville's shoulder. You'll be all right, you know. They're all friends. I have no friends. Outside the domino room, Neville hung back. It was Paul who pushed open the door and walked in. Treading on his heels, Neville stumbled and almost fell. Paul found a table near the entrance and ordered whiskies, but it was a minute or two before he felt able to look around. Once again, they were the centre of attention, though nobody openly stared. Despite Neville's frequent self-pitying assertions that he was finished as an artist, overlooked, forgotten, yesterday's man, his return to London had been reported in all the papers, though nothing had been said about the nature or severity of his wounds. But he was known to be at Queen's Hospital, so the injuries had to be facial. The rumours had begun almost at once. Some people said he was so hideously disfigured his own mother had run screaming from the room. Others, that his brain was affected too, that he was either mad or a cabbage. And now here he was, or here somebody was. Neville's thick-set figure and truculent bearing were almost enough to identify him, but not quite. People glanced at the mask and quickly away. Was it him? It had to be, but nobody was confident enough to come forward and speak to him. The mask didn't help. Rupert Brooke's face gazing around a room where he'd so often lauded it in the flesh. Enough to give you the shivers. Neville was on his fifth whiskey. Paul expected him to become even more aggressive, but instead he sank into a morose stupor, peering through the slits in the mask at scenes of former triumph. 
Two or three years ago, he'd have walked into this room as if he owned it. Paul remembered meeting him here, Neville, the famous war artist, whose latest exhibition was on everybody's lips, and he felt a flicker of shameful pleasure at the reversal of their fortunes, a mean, filthy emotion quickly suppressed. The silence had gone on too long. He tried to find a topic of conversation that would rouse Neville from his stupor, but nothing worked. He either couldn't or wouldn't speak. Instead, he sat staring around the room, the silver face of the dead poet turning from group to group. Gradually, uncertainly, a few people began to respond, raising their glasses, smiling ghost smiles at what must have seemed to most of them a ghost. Suddenly, Paul realised they weren't sure Neville, or whoever it was behind the mask, could see them. Nothing was visible behind the slits, and he'd stumbled when he first came into the room. A large group at a nearby table fell silent for a time, but then slowly the conversation started up again. They were talking about an exhibition that included three of Paul's paintings. Some at least of the group must have recognised him, but nobody spoke. The cordon sanitaire around Neville obviously included him too. They were still covertly the focus for every eye in the room. The mask went on smiling its faint archaic smile. Behind it, an eye like a dying sun sank beneath the rim of a shattered cheekbone. The hole where the nose had been gaped wide and the mouth endlessly, tirelessly snarled. Neville was clenching and unclenching his fists. Bastards! I'll bury the whole fucking lot of them. Calm down. Why? Why should I calm down? Two years ago, they were queuing up to lick my ass, and now look at them. They don't know what to say, that's all. He didn't know what to say. More important, he didn't know what to do, how to get them out of this situation. He turned to Neville. Look, why don't we... Suddenly, without any warning, Neville began to roar, the bellow of a wounded bull with the full force of his lungs behind it. Paul tried to grab his arm, but he was too late. Neville was on his feet. He waited till every eye in the room was fixed on him, and then he took off the mask. One or two people cried out. Others went blank with shock. Instinctively, Paul stepped in front of Neville. Though whether to shield him from their reactions or them from the sight of him, he didn't know. He thought nothing could have been more terrible than that roaring. But then Neville started to cry, a puppy howl of abandonment and loss. Paul put an arm around his shoulder and managed to turn him towards the door. Come on, he kept saying, come on, it's all right. The way he would have spoken to a distraught child or a frightened horse. Neville let himself be led from the room. By the time they reached the pavement, he'd stopped crying, though his chest still shook. And then, to Paul's utter bewilderment, he started to laugh. Did you see their faces? Oh, my God! Paul didn't know how to respond to this. He knew, if he knew anything at all, he knew this, that every part of Neville's anger and distress had been genuine. The brooding, the resentment, the rage, the look at me of the abandoned child or the slighted artist, the tears, the sobbing, it had all been real. Surely it had. And yet Neville's laughter now seemed to deny that. He realised Neville was already hard at work, reshaping the events of the evening, carving out for himself, if only in retrospect, a position of authority and control. 
That was Neville all over. A fat, moist silkworm, perpetually spinning the legend of himself. And it worked. It worked. Paul had already started to edit his own memories of the evening. Perhaps Neville had always intended that dramatic sweeping aside of the mask. Perhaps he'd got drunk in order to be able to do it. Perhaps. But none of that justified his behaviour. Well, that was pretty grim, Paul said, tight-lipped. My dear fellow, blame the mask. This is a mask of known bad character. Chap who owns it goes on the underground, waits till there's a few girls sitting nearby, and then takes it off. Comes back to the wall, holds up his fingers. Neville held up his own hand to demonstrate. How many screamed? How many fainted? There aren't many faints, but he has had two. He seemed to sense Paul's disapproval. Oh, for God's sake, Tarrant, it's a game. It's a terrible game. You get your laughs where you can. He walked on a few steps, turned back. You know, Tarrant, you're no fun at all tonight. <laughs> That's a wonderful scene, an excruciating scene. And it begins with Neville hiding in plain sight and then finishes with him confronting himself as well as yes. others. Yes. And uh, it, it, it is actually... What, what, anyway, I didn't invent the Rupert Brooke mask, you see. Uh, I came across it in the course of doing research. You know, I'm afraid I couldn't believe my luck. I mean, it is, it's such a, a wonderful thing to hide this disfigured face beyond, beyond the face of youthful idealism, which is what Rupert Brooke, of course, means to our understanding of that war, mm. and any war. And there are two characters absent in that scene, but who, for me, stand everywhere behind it. Um, the surgeon, Henry Gillis, and the yes. artist, Henry Tonks. Tonks yes. How do they bear on this scene? Can you tell us, and how do they um, work? Well, uh, Gillies uh, 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 is mentioned in passing, uh, that he couldn't do anything for this particular man who had no features left. Uh, but he, he did uh, do remarkable things for a lot of the facially disfigured soldiers. It was a thousand-bed hospital, and there was a great concentration of plastic surgery skills, uh, and also of skills in, uh, in artistry as well. In, um, and uh, Gillies was really the father of plastic surgery, because, I mean, they were standing there day after day operating on these faces, and they were really inventing the techniques as they went on, because uh, the pressure was so intense. And um, Gillies had his own set of surgical instruments, which he'd designed himself, some of which he'd designed himself. And then Henry Tonks was Professor of Fine Art at the Slade. I became that in 1917. And he was there as a medical illustrator. But while there, um, he also did a series of pastel portraits of disfigured young men. Uh, I think there are about 71, but they are still occasionally being discovered. 
And these portraits are very remarkable because they don't just delineate the wound, they delineate the personality of the, of the, mm. the man who has suffered the wound. So you, you find yourself glancing from the wound to the man's eyes and his intact features and then back to the wound. And all the time you're asking yourself this question, uh, how does anybody cope with this happening to them? And, you know, it, it, there's some before and after photographs. And you, you see uh, the repair to the wound and you see a, a change in the man's facial expression and the way in which his head is poised on his shoulders, that he is uh, more able to face the world. Though um, it wasn't always possible for them to, you know, pick up the threads of their life. Uh, some of them remained working in the hospital as porters and never rejoined the outside world. So the Queen's Hospital is um, a key setting in this novel, as Craig Lothart was in the yes, yeah. in Regeneration. Mm. So um, in terms of Gillis and, sorry, in terms of Tonks and his role as a, yeah. an illustrator in the hospital, there is this awful tension, isn't there, art and ethics again, about whether those pictures of men who have gone through such disfigurement should be seen yes, as to whether yeah. they are art and should be looked at at all. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about that? How do you resolve those well, issues? I think Tonks, uh, Tonks um, who did not own the, the, his portraits, though they were his best work, but he didn't own them. Um, he thought they should never be shown. Um, uh, I, I, I think the, the, they're, now, they're now owned by the Royal College of Surgeons, which mm -hmm. does now lend them out, uh, but in, in, you know, in a very controlled and restricted way. And of course, we have reached the point where the grandchildren of those men uh, are prob have probably uh, themselves died very frequently by this stage. So there's no longer the invasion of privacy that there would have been if these portraits had been displayed at the time. Uh, there's always a balance, I think, not just in that war, but in any war between uh, the, uh, the right of the individual disfigured soldier for privacy and the right of his family for privacy while he, they try to come to terms with it. Um, but also, of course, this does mean that uh, uh, in every war you have the glorious dead with the Union Jack or whatever flag it is draped across the coffin, mm -hmm. and you have likely wounded people but you do not see the, the seriously wounded people, scarcely at all. And of course, this is, not to be too cynical, but this is quite useful for politicians who, uh, you know, don't have to, you know, who can tell the electorate that the price for this war is worth paying, knowing that actually the electorate are not seeing very much of the price. I hope that's not unduly cynical. No. It's not a party political point. They all do it. <laughs> I think it's an important point because so many of the characters are war artists in this novel, aren't yeah, they? Yes. And it seems to me that they're caught between potential propaganda on the one hand and censorship yes, on yeah, the other. Yes. And it, it, I think it's to their credit that they did give such a, a, a vivid picture of what that war was like given that they were not allowed to show corpses, you know, and they did produce a certain number of those, that war, uh, they weren't allowed to show corpses and they weren't allowed to show wounded, mm. uh, especially British wounded, unless the wounds were being attended to, which in practice means hidden by bandages. Mm. Um, 
And it, I, th I think some of the most successful images of the war are these um, uh, Paul Nash's paintings of ruined landscapes and dead trees, where the, the, the devastation which was wreaked on men uh, is sort of you know, symbolized by the devastation wreaked on a particular landscape. And they, these paintings are still um, absolutely iconic mm -hmm. because the devastation is so total in them that they could equally well be uh, a portrait of the world after a nuclear war. Uh, nothing is left alive. And, um, oh, and Neville's, oh, uh, Neville's, uh, uh, well, Nevinson's uh, drawings of um, men who have become, have almost turned into machines. Um, and that, that works too, uh, because there is no, uh, there are no wounds. Uh, this, it, 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 it was an industrial slaughter, mm. and, it, and uh, men becoming machines, behaving, looking like machines, is a very good way of representing that. Didn't he also, there was the painting, was it Paths of Glory? That yes, where he, uh, he, he, put, he, he defied the censor and he put two corpses in the foreground of the picture, a very obviously bloated and decaying corpses, and he, that he was told that he could not show that picture. So what he did was to um, write the word censored and stick it across the corpses, but still hang the picture in the exhibition. And then, of course, he was in trouble again, because he did not have the right to use the word censored. Mm -hmm. Only the official censor had the right to do that. <laughs> it was typical of Nevinson. Oh. I mean, of the three characters, the key characters in the novel who are war artists, they're in some ways based around or upon real artists at the time, aren't they? Yes, they are, yes. And, Especially um, in, in, the, in the way that they achieve a, particular, a vision of the war. Mm. Uh, Eleanor's uh, paintings, uh, at the end of life class, she says that if uh, her brother Toby dies, she won't want to paint the war, she won't want to paint what destroyed him. She'll go back home and paint the countryside they grew up in. And uh, she will paint what made him, she doesn't want to paint what destroyed him. And she does exactly that, but the paintings she paints are landscapes in which there's always this kind of shadowy figure, which it, no, it may not even quite be a man. If it is a man, mm. it's, a, it's a shadow or a ghost, or in a way, she's painting an absence. And it's only long after when she, that this burst of creativity is over that she realizes that those paintings are every bit as much war paintings mm. as the paintings of the battlefields in France. Because she is actually painting um, the key figure of the 20th century. Mm. There's a young man who should be there, who should have grown old with his family, and didn't. She's painting that dreadful absence, which in some curious way became more moving and uh, harder to ignore towards the end of the century. Ellen is an interesting character because she's the one who, first in life class and then in this novel, Toby's Room, tries to avoid the war as much as she can, doesn't yes, she? Yeah. She even uses an idea of Virginia Woolf's that if women yes. are not part of the political process, they can't be yes, part the, of the, the women, war. Women should not uh, have anything to do with the war. They shouldn't even oppose it because they are so far outside the political process that it has, is actually nothing to do with them. 
And as Eleanor says, that when Virginia Woolf says it, it sounds very intelligent. Mm. And we, when she repeats it, it sounds very stupid. Uh, but it, it is a very radical point of view. It's not a point of view uh, I, I agree with. No. I, I just, uh, I, I think that the lives of men and women uh, are so intimately entwined that it would not be possible for a woman to ignore what was happening to the men of her, you know, her friends, her brothers, her cousins, her boyfriend. How could you possibly cut yourself off from what was happening to them? Well, there is a moment where she defends both Kit and Paul for having volunteered for service in yes. a room full of conscientious objectors. Mm. And at the same time, she's punishing them, particularly Paul, for having for having gone uh, to war, you know, for Why having gone that? for having gone to war, she's not she's not at all uh, consistent about it, and I suspect that if uh, I I, th I don't know whether she says that, but I think she certainly thinks it that if she'd been born a, bo a boy, she'd have been out there like a shot, because, just simply because for so many what so many men felt when they were home on leave. Mm. The, you know, it, the, the home scene was so intolerable, so disgusting in many ways, that you were just glad to get out there again. She doesn't say it, but it's she interesting that it. you say maybe she thinks it. Because I think she does. I'm quite certain that's what she would think. She would admit that, I think, if you pushed her into, into a corner. Because <laughs> it makes me think that you once sort of said to me that you think that the novel form is one of the most analytically interesting because you can perform your ideas and analysis, but it's a form through which you can feel deeply. Yes, and, and, and at the same time. And that uh, analysis and feeling deeply in the novel are not alternative uh, or exclusive ways of responding to something. Mm. They can be done as a unity. And that is, I think, possibly only true of the novel. Mm which is why its fiction is actually, in spite of everything, remains so important. Mm. And, it's, and it's about individuals, of course, as well. Um, uh, ordinary individuals, whereas history tends to be about the movers and shakers in society, and sociology tends to be making generalizations about groups of people. And, uh, you know, the, the glory of fiction, really, is this individual character. In which, uh, through which the events of his own time or our own time or historical period can be uh, empathised with and analysed at the same time. But within that kind of empathy, uh, the emotions that you provoke in the reader, maybe in the passage that Pat just read, um, Paul is pulled all over the place in terms of his emotions in responding to Kit. Yeah. Kit is clearly... Um, a roller coaster of emotions in that scene. Yes. But yeah. we too are pulled in and out because we laughed, didn't we? You created a kind of yes, gallows yeah. humour out of something that's. Yeah, well, I, th I think that then the men awful. themselves were so good at creating gallows humour. Uh, they had to be. Um, yes, you are pulled in and out. And e even Paul, who I think, in many ways, I think Paul is the pleasantest character. He's the character with most kindness, most compassion in his makeup. But even he, you know, has that moment of triumph when he realises, you know, the kit is finished, uh, possibly finished as an artist. Mm. And he most definitely isn't. He's doing rather well. Mm. Uh, so he's on top in this sort of constant struggle that's been going on between them. And then instantly he is aware that he thinks that and he quickly suppresses it. But of course his kindness and his decency and his compassion are based on the fact that he knows he's an absolute shit. 
And that is the basis of decency in anybody, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your, your novels are character-driven, aren't they? Even when um, there are so many ideas, like the ones that we're discussing, that infuse them. Oh, yeah, it's, it's entirely, for me, about character. Uh, they're, they're not very plotty, usually. Uh, the Eye and the Door has uh, quite an intricate plot. Yes. But mainly, I, I, I'm interested in, in creating the people, and uh, I'm interested in the ideas that they hold, like Kit Neville's futurism, which he um, uh, held in, the, in life class. But I'm interested in what the idea reveals about the individuality of that person, why they believe it, rather than in the truth or otherwise of what it is that they believe. And it seems to me that, that much of that comes through for us as readers through dialogue, because I know it was what drew me to your fiction in the first place. Um, and I wanted to think about that, because I think you once said that dialogue, writing dialogue, is a special language. Yes. And yet we tend to... I think, I think it's a matter... It. It, I think it's... Um, I used to think a lot about writing dialogue because, I mean, it's something that people uh, don't often... Uh, critics try and tend to avoid mm. because, there's, you know, you, basically, there's not very much clever that can be said about it. it you know, it, it either seems credible or it doesn't. Mm. But I, I, I like the idea of, um, you know, when you're being... Um, filmed, uh, the sound recordist records ambient silence, which is what the, the, sound, the sound of the room where nobody is talking, and every room has a different ambient silence. And I think the secret to writing di good dialogue, actually, is to get the ambient silence, to get what is going on between these two people, or three or four people, in this room where nobody is saying anything. Mm. And then everything that they say emerges out of that silence and goes back into the silence. It's as if the words are a sculpting silence. I think that's... I mean, in this novel in particular, I think that that works beautifully because... Although the conversations that people have, like the one, the exchange between Kit and Neville, is so telling, it seems to me that this is a novel about silence and that the kind of conversations that are never had between the characters or the silence mm. about what can never be expressed about the war is like a pressure on the plot that... Yes, and, and although, in, in a sense, you know, some, you know, one, some person said that this was, like a, in a sense, a kind of whodunit, uh, or why done it, or, mm. or um, what happened? Um, you, you never actually are secure in the, in the sense that you have found out. Mm. Uh, and you know, in the final chapter, the, these characters have a lot of secrets, mm. and remarkably few of those secrets have been revealed. Mm. And I think um, this is actually quite like life. What we don't know about our nearest and dearest mm. would probably shake us rigid. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying very carefully not to yes, give away so some I. of the points. <laughs> there are some wonderful moments in this book of, that are mm. hugely emotive or shocking, and I think for new readers, I would hate to be the one who gave them away in a question. Mm. Um, but just to take you off in another direction um, for a minute, there are two sexual encounters at the heart of this novel, and I wanted to ask you about writing sex, because mm. you're rather good at it, aren't you? Nobody's ever... <laughs> You know, you, uh, it's not easy to do. Well, you see, I, you do I, it a lot. I always feel that you know, I put my readers through the mill so much. 
And I think they deserve a bit of sex now and then. Because <laughs> <laughs> sex is one of the joys of life, you know. And <laughs> there's an awful lot of the agonies of life in my work. Yeah. Mm. So sex and humour, despite the fact that we have these... Yes, um, yes. And hopefully humour in bed, which is the most difficult thing to write of all, I think. Mm. I, I, you know, I'm not in, altogether in favour of the bad sex prize because I think it inhibits, it, it inhibits writers. And I don't think writers should be inhibited no. uh, uh, in writing, uh, try, at least trying to write about sex. No. Mm. Um, similarly, I think, and again, without trying to give anything away, I think this is a novel about grief, isn't it? Uh, uh, yes, it's a novel about grief and loss. It's, um, uh, it's a novel which, you know, uh, if life class was dominated by vision, uh, partly because I was writing through the point of view of very young artists, uh, I think this novel is um, dominated by smell, which is the sense which mm. is, uh, you know, closest in the brain to, to, to the memory centres. And I think smell is e extremely important in the process of grieving. You, you deal with some very difficult but emotive issues, really, about grief. Mm. The way in which we might take a person inside of ourselves, live through them, live for them in the act of grief. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, Was that difficult to write? Difficult to make clear, I think. Mm. I think uh, there is a sense in which grief is ingestion, mm. that people um, resolve uh, the, the grief by taking in uh, some of the qualities of the person they are grieving for. Uh, in, in a sort of pathological way, people very frequently uh, develop the symptoms of the illness that the person they've lost died, died of. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, sometimes they're psychosomatic, but sometimes they really start to, to uh, suffer from, these, from the, the same condition. But also, I think the, the strength and the good qualities um, of, of the dead person can be taken into the, peop into the, uh, the personalities of the, per the people who are mourning um, for him. It's, you know, it's, it's what, you, you know, the sort of sophisticated, civilised people we think we are. And you think back to the ancient Britons who used to eat their father's heart. The, the, men, the men would eat the father's heart because they believed that the heart was the seat of courage. That. So that was the first thing you had to do after your father died, was cut him open and devour the heart. God. Oh, at, least we, at least we only do it metaphorically now. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> I'm taking you in a different direction now. Yeah. Um, just in terms of life class and Toby's room being perhaps a sequence in that they cut across each other. Mm. And you've obviously got an interest in the kind of long narrative form through the, the trilogy. Well, it, it seems to happen. Do you think that there will be... I know you don't like talking about work in progress, but mm. I'm just wondering with the home audience, do you think, do you think you'll take a character out of Toby's room? And oh, I think I could take several, several... I think I could take the three main characters and take them on away, but it would have to be a long way. I don't want to sort of cram in another um, third world, uh, first world war book, but I, I, I'm quite interested in that generation. It's because it's a generation that fought that war, uh, believed it had fought and won the war to end all wars, and 20 years later, uh, their sons and daughters and nieces and nephews were fighting another war, 
And I think that generation was made to feel that in some way it had failed. Mm. It had it sort of dropped the catch, you know, it hadn't done what it set out to do. And because of that, the next generation was having to do it. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in the Second World War, but from the perspective of people who fought in the first. I think that is, uh, and I like this idea of, um, it's, it's, you know, Elizabeth Bowen says something like this, that, you know, people, um, their generation toddled into the 20th century with their teddy bears and their toy boats. And in the battlefields, the, the, you know, puberty and adolescence were the battlefields of the Somme. And then they had to meet again in, uh, as the century approached its terrible noon. Uh, and uh, put like that, of course, uh, that century is the trajectory of yeah. a life story, and a life story in which people were tested to the limit, mm. uh, not once, but twice. So there may be a third in this sequence. And do you think, can you tell us anything about the fact that the Regeneration Trilogy is going to be televised, isn't it? Oh, it is. Uh, yes, I think, I think it's becoming almost certain that it will be, uh, it will be televised in three or four parts to... So another kind of long narrative. Yes, coincide with the centenary. And I, I do hope so, because I think... Uh, there was a film of Regeneration, but I think yeah. it was always meant, really, to, to be the three books. And I think it is natural television rather mm. than a feature film. So, so I think it will have found its, its, you know, its proper film expression. Mm. Do we know, can you tell us anything more about that? Do we, only do the, we know who might act the, in it? Uh, no, no, only no. that Paula Mill uh, did The Politician's Wife. That's the most recent thing she did. She is doing the uh, script for it. Mm. And so we know it'll be at least three episodes. At least or? three episodes, maybe four. Mm. Mm. Right, thank you. Mm. Um, I think we can probably open things up to questions for the last 15 minutes or so, because certainly I've got a lot more questions I could ask, but I'm conscious that probably you too have. So maybe we could open it up to questions for a little while. And could we have the lights up, please, so that we could do that? We can see you now, can't we? Yes, yes. Which we they, couldn't before. They have gone up. It seemed, <laughs> it seemed darker to us then, didn't it? Because yeah. these had been yeah. dimmed, yes. yes. And then um, I think there's a, a microphone, a roving microphone, if anybody has particular questions that they'd like to ask. Mm. Yes. Oh, sorry, can you just wait for the microphone? Just yes, you can. I can hear you because clearly, the, the but I'm not sure. The people at the back, you say, it's the people at the back. Um, you inhabit the world of fact and fiction, or you, you move between the two into fiction. Um, and I wondered if you ever had sort of moved into the personalities of people like Siegfried, Sassoon, etc., with any trepidation or concerns for how other people who hold them dear will react. I mean, when you first started out, obviously you did it brilliantly, but I wondered... If when you first considered doing it, whether it was a scary thing to try to do? Uh, well, uh, in, in this book, uh, I don't think Tonks... Um, uh, he was not a married man, he had no children. Similarly with Rivers, you see, so there were no direct descendants. Um, and I, I don't actually tend to say anything 
particularly bad about people, you know. Um, I mean, in, in regeneration, you know, Rivers is a kind of saint. Sassoon is a war hero. Um, Owen is a poet of genius. I mean, what are the families going to moan, moan on about, frankly? <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, Tonks, uh, I think I've... Um, I think my portrait of Tonks is actually a very sympathetic one, and I think it restores the balance, because I think with Tonks, you get a lot of um, repetitions of uh, the, the scathing things he used to say to these poor students. Mm. But he was also, at times, very, very patient and kind, uh, and not just to the brilliant students either, quite often to the ones who were falling by the wayside a bit. Because uh, he was basically very egalitarian in his views on, on drawing. He simply believed that just as we all should learn to read and write and, and you know, be fairly numerate, he believed that everybody could and should know how to draw. Uh, he regarded it as a basic skill. So You've he, also helped bring his painting back, haven't you, in the sense that... Uh, John well, uh, Singer Sargent or you know, others were seen yes. as sort of being more archetypal yes, war yeah. artists than Tonks. Well, I mean, I, 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 think, I do feel that his best work was the pastel drawings of disfigured soldiers, uh, perhaps with one uh, other painting from, also from the First World War. Um, and um, it, it was his tragedy, really, that his best work had to be kept hidden mm. uh, for the best part of um, 70, 80 years. There's a question at the back there, well, halfway down. Lady in the skull. Hi. Um, in Regeneration, in the Troll Trilogy, you don't shy away from gore or guts or gore, but I felt that with the facial injuries, you sort of leave it to us to imagine. I wondered if there was a reason that you don't really describe Neville's injuries to us in detail. Uh, why I describe them in detail? Um, I describe it in detail there because of uh, the contrast with the mask. Um, I'm not sure how much detail there is. When you, when you first meet Kate, you don't even know what's wrong with him. Sorry, did you... I, I, I didn't think we heard you prop quite... Could um, you just... I said in, in Regeneration, you, ah. you do a lot of gore and, and guts and gore and describing all the gory scenes in a lot of detail, but you avoid describing Kit's facial disfiguration ah. to us. And I wondered why you made that artistic choice to mm. avoid the description. Well, I think the guts and gore and regeneration is, is very concentrated uh, because actually it's all set, of course, in Edinburgh. Uh, and it's, um, it's, it's all in the form of uh, nightmares and traumatic memories. Mm. Um, that, that, and yes, I... I there's no point beating people over the head. We all know that it was incredibly traumatic, and that mustn't be shied away from. You have to, you have to face up to describing uh, some of the traumatic events that happened to people, because otherwise they're all sitting around drinking coffee and doing nothing else. But I don't think it should ever be dwelt on. It's one of the reasons why I didn't set uh, the, 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 the Regeneration Trilogy to any large extent in the trenches, because I think in... In, in those circumstances, it would inevitably become repetitive. And you don't want people to be feeling sick or shocked out of their mind. You want them to be able to feel and think, mm. uh, you know, to take in a particular traumatic thing like the eye that uh, Pryor picks up. 
but then to be able to move on from that into um, you know, thinking about it and thinking about how Pryor is going to recover from that experience. And there are some careful descriptions of the facial injuries in Toby's room. Yeah. And, I mean, do you feel a kind of responsibility to those men so that the care that you take in describing those most awful wounds uh, is something that is a writerly responsibility or, you know, is it a moral and ethical feeling that you have in returning to these? I don't know that there is. A, that there are a lot of descriptions of them. Uh, Kit's missing nose and his shattered eye and his, his snarling mouth, but that is the most detailed description there is, I yeah. think. Yeah. Anybody else? There's one... Oh, there's one, one gentleman just here and uh, somebody else, a lady, right at the back then. Uh, your work is obviously um, research-based, and you've mentioned that. You also mentioned the importance of an author not being inhibited. I was wondering whether, in developing a character about whom you've done a lot of research, that in a strange way inhibits the way in which you want to develop that character as a fictional person. Um, I think there are some inhibitions in that, in that sense. Um, I mean, neither Rivers, Owen, or Sassoon has any sex life at all um, in regeneration. And uh, nor, of course, does Tonks. I mean, he's, uh, there are rumors about Tonks. There are speculations about his uh, admiration for certain uh, young ladies. But they are speculations of the kind that any teacher a charismatic teacher will undergo. Um, or male teachers, anyway. Yeah, but I mean, that was a, that was a, that was a decision, actually. Uh, I, I didn't want to pursue real characters into the bedroom. I'm quite happy to do any amount of that with fictional characters, but I happen to believe that real people, even when dead, deserve a certain amount of privacy. Thank you. There's a lady right at the, on the back row. I'm interested in hearing about, um, you, obviously your novels include a lot about the psychological effects of horror and trauma on the characters, whether they be real or fictional. And those characters often have a background in some form of creative art, so the poets or the artists. And I'm interested in um, how much research you had to do into the relationship between trauma and the creative process, and whether you had to spend a lot of time learning about psychology and the history of the treatment of uh, shell shock and mental illness generally. I spent, I spent a lot of time learning about shell shock by simply by sitting in a medical library in Newcastle and um, you know, reading the, my way through the Lancet, uh, which you know, from 19... As early as 1914, uh, there were various theories being promulgated about the causes of shell shock. Um, and, you know, reading, also reading William Rivers' papers, published and unpublished. Um, so the relationship between trauma and creativity, um, I don't know that you can research that. I think you just have to feel your way into it. I, I think in Regeneration, Rivers' ideas on... Um, conflict and dream, and the way in which dream uh, relates to myth and also relates to poetry. I think that was uh, uh, 
not only influenced Sassoon, I think, but I think was probably via Sassoon was a very potent influence on Wilfred Owen. Um, I mean, because uh, Rivers didn't treat Owen, I don't think that means at all that Owen was not influenced by Rivers's ideas, because he was spending three or four evenings a week with Siegfried Sassoon, who would just have come from a discussion with Rivers, going through Owen's poetry together. And it's inconceivable to me that Rivers's mm. uh, work on conflict and dream did not actually uh, um, uh, have a big influence on Wilfred Owen. But I don't know of anybody who has actually explored that possibility. I mean, in a sense, if you read across your novels, you have intervened in the kind of history of psychiatry, haven't you? Well, I don't know about intervening in it. Well, you don't always <laughs> approve of it, do you? Sort of, I'm thinking of maybe some of the later novels where we have psychiatrists as, as characters. Yes. You know, coming yeah. back to that lady's question about psychology. And yes, yes. And we, we, have, we have a psychologist, of course, in Border Crossing. Yes. Um, who, uh, yeah, who, who sort of breaks the rules, really, mm. and gets himself into a terrible tangle because mm. he's broken the rules. Yeah. Yes. And you, you also have, um, in that book, you have Danny Miller, who I think could very easily set himself up as a counsellor. Uh, I think he would love doing it. He would love the feeling of power. Mm. And uh, uh, he would be superficially very good at it because he's got very strong social skills. But of course, he would be absolutely devastating from the point of view of the helpless patient mm. because he would be entirely motivated and driven by his own uh, abnormal pathological mm. needs. Uh, but uh, I think that, unfortunately, can happen. Okay. Any more questions? Yes. Lady, over on the end there. Thank you. Um, just really to pick up on what you've just said, um, thinking about other works that you've, you've written, and um, I'm not embarrassed to say I've read all of them and love them. <laughs> and where I can see common themes across really everything that you've written, there are some very clear distinctions. And I wonder if you ever feel that you have had or are having kind of two different authorial careers. Or do you always, you know, when you sit down to write, is it always the same? Um. I think it's, I, I think, I, I do seem to have had, you know, uh, two distinct careers. Uh, I mean, when my first three books, I, the, the, the most frequent question I was asked was, why don't you write about men? Um, <laughs> and uh, by the time I'd finished the Regeneration Trilogy, people were starting to ask me why I didn't write about women, ever. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's partly the accident that I was published initially by Virago, mm. whose remit, quite rightly, was to foreground the experiences of women uh, after a long period in which the experiences of women had been misrepresented or ignored. Um, but I think, um, I think my first two books fit very easily into the Virago remit. And after that, I was uh, rapidly sort of feeling that this is not where I want to be. I don't simply want to write about working class women uh, in the back streets of Teesside. I mean, I'm very glad I did write about them. That's my family background is that, and I am perfectly happy with that. Uh, but I, I knew I could do other things as well as that. 
And if you can do more than one thing, why would you simply confine yourself to doing one? But I mean, I agree, there is more of a division um, in, my, in my career than in many people's mm. careers. But I think that is partly accidentally. I don't think the I suddenly changed. <laughs> I don't see that division, really. I mean, weren't you, by the third novel, you already had veteran, war veteran characters, didn't you? And I did, yes, I did. And you thought about those uh, women in the early novels. Yes, as uh, and uh, that slightly wimpy social worker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, but then I was, I was sort of starting to push against it at that mm. point. Mm. Maybe when somebody's written that many novels, you know, you can see these kind of changes yeah. and, and trends... Any other questions? Yes. Lady on the second row here. You're having to run, aren't you? For this audience, we're all over the place. It was really just a comment rather than a question. I, I was interested when you were talking about conversations and listening to people talking to each other and the, the, the spaces and the silence. Yes. It seems to me a lot of the conversations that would, I really enjoyed in your book were internal conversations between their characters and that seemed to be a really integral part of the, of the plot. And at the end, just at the end of the reading, you said something about our nearest and dearest would be shocked if they knew half of what went on in our heads. And mm. I think all the way through that, this book, I was struck by this idea that no matter how close we are to people, we're somehow mm. enclosed in our own private cocoon. And that came across really well. And I think mm. all the characters, although they're interacting with each other, are surrounded by their own sort of internal envelope, really. Yes, and, 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 the, and the most important conversation we all ever, ha we ever have, of course, which is the continual conversation we're having with ourselves, uh, which we can't uh, ever get away from. And uh, it's only with great difficulty that you can even learn to control it. You know, you get, you get these uh, people who sort of, uh, who become depressed because they are continually beating themselves up. And it can be very hard to, to get people to stop doing that. <laughs> and it's an interesting comment because in a novel with so many relationships in it, yes, failed or failing or succeeding, yes. that that should still. I, I did be when the case. I first started out. I found uh, uh, this interior uh, monologue or interior conversation the hardest thing to write, and it was the thing where I really had to work and work and work at it in order to get it. Uh, a, a little bit, bit less wooden, especially the, yeah, the going into it and the coming out of it is, is an, always an awkward moment for a writer. There's a lady there. Oh, there's a lady on the front row. Do you think being able to write these and, or see into people's internal monologues, does that in any way help you to put any order into your own and to <laughs> keep into tracks with your own? Uh, my, my, my own interior monologue. <laughs> uh, I think I am uh, one of the people who has a tendency to beat herself up. Uh, you know, I, I think most writers are chronically, dep chronically depressed, chronically mildly depressed, and chronically mildly inclined to self-medicate on alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> that is a typical writer, I'm afraid. It's <laughs> probably the typical reader for a lot of yeah, people yeah, as well. Probably, isn't it? yes. Mm. I think we've maybe got time for just one more question, possibly, and then um, I'm getting signals that we, we need to stop. So, any last question? 
Nobody wants to have the last word. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can if you, if you don't want to. Yes. Um, and I'd just like to, to thank Pat mm. for having spoken so honestly and openly about so many facets of the fiction that she writes. Including the depression and the alcoholism, <laughs> you say. Because <laughs> she's such a joker. You heard it here first. <laughs> it's just not true. And, um, and you're going to be signing copies of the novel yes. out in the, um, out in the, the bookstore room yeah. in a few moments. So can we thank Pat Barker very much, please? <laughs>